It's my privilege this morning to introduce our speaker, um, Dr. Irv Busnitz, who comes to us from Master's Seminary and other places in his life as God has walked him through that. Um, Irv grew up in central Kansas, and after completing undergraduate studies in Omaha, Nebraska, he came to California with his wife, Karen, who's with him this morning, to attend Talbot Seminary. During residency there in his Master of Divinity, he served as a youth and associate pastor in Downey, California. Once he graduated, he joined the Bible and Old Testament faculty at Talbot, and from 1977 to 1986 served as director of their Valley Campus, which was based at Grace Community Church. He became a founding member of the Master's Seminary in 1986, and I'm just realizing that's 30 years ago. Wow, you certainly don't look old enough to have done that. And there he continues as vice president for academics, professor of Bible and Old Testament. I think many of our pastors have enjoyed his course. Well, maybe enjoyed is the wrong word, but they've been in his courses. Irv serves as an elder at Grace Church, where uh, Karen is also active over there at the seminary with the Seminary Wives Program. Dr. Busnitz has done postdoctoral work in the American Institute of Holy Land Studies and has authored books and articles for journals and periodicals and is also active in Bible conference ministries. He and Karen have been married for more than 45 years. They are the parents of two married sons and six grandchildren. And he is a valuable friend of Calvary Bible Church. He's ministered to our leadership many times through the years in serving the Lord and his people right here at Calvary in that way. Finally, it's been my privilege to know Irv for more than 10 years, to work with him through the fun, and I'm using the word fun with quotation marks there, of accreditation efforts for both the college and seminary, and I'm blessed that he would consider me his friend. Irv, please come on up and open the word for us, brother. Thank you, John. Thank you very much. Thank you, John, very much for that rather long and laborious introduction. (laughs) Thank you very much for the invitation to come and open God's Word with you this morning. I trust you enjoyed the rain as you were driving in. We get so little of it here, it sure is nice when we have it. I tell the seminary students from time to time that it would be great if someone would write a theology of rain a theology of rain, because rain does teach us so many things. He causes it to rain on the just and on the unjust. But more importantly, for this morning, he causes the rain to be a lesson of God's word not returning void to us, but that it will accomplish all which he pleases. We're going to look at Psalm 139 this morning. So if you have a Bible, please open to Psalm 139. Psalm 139, pursuing the ultimate goal. Pursuing the ultimate goal. Almost 400 years, a group of pastors and church leaders convened a convention, a convocation in the country of Scotland. Their goal was to hammer out the basics of the Christian faith, to decide on the rudiments of Christianity, to boil down the teachings of, of Scripture into the keys for Christian living. The idea of convening an assembly was not new, was not unusual. Over the centuries, there have been many convocations and assemblies of this sort and of this type. 
We read about one of them in Acts chapter 15, the Jerusalem Council. First century, they were hammering out the demands of the old covenant on new believers. In the fourth century, there was the Council of Nicaea where they were hammering out what it really meant to be uh, for Christ to be God and man at the same time, the deity of Christ. Over the years, there have been many other such assemblies. Most recently, the Chicago Council on Biblical Inerrancy in the 1980s. But this Scottish council called the Westminster Assembly will be remembered by many because of one key statement that it made. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That line boils down the ultimate purpose for our existence as believers. In one succinct, crisp statement, it lays down the ultimate goal of your life as a believer and mine, of every Christian, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. It has truly stood the test of time because it is biblical. That is what the Bible teaches For almost 400 years, it has stood the test of time. Scripture teaches that we are to glorify God and enjoy him forever. It's what the Bible clearly teaches. Ephesians chapter 1 does it more clearly than any other passage. In chapter 1 of Ephesians, verses 5 and 6, listen as I just capsulate, summarize what they say. He predestined us to be to the praise of his glory. Chapter 1, verse 12 of Ephesians. To the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. Chapter 1, verse 14. The Holy Spirit is given as a pledge, as an engagement ring of our inheritance with the view toward the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Why are we to glorify God forever? Why are we to be to the praise of his glory? Because as believers, Colossians 1 tells us, he has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son. That is why we should be to the praise of his glory. He has rescued us from the domain of darkness transferring us to the kingdom of his son. This line, this verse, is dripping with emotional appeal. He has snatched us from the fires of eternal death and transferred us to the kingdom of his son. Peter puts it this way in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. His divine power has granted us everything. For life and godliness. No wonder we should be to the praise of his glory. Ephesians chapter 1 again says that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ is ours. Furthermore, rather interestingly, this is not just the chief end of man. It goes beyond mankind in Scripture. 
The chief end of all creation is to glorify God. Isaiah 43.20, even the beasts of the field will glorify me. Physical creation as well. The well-known verse in Psalm 19, verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God. And the firmament shows forth his handiwork. The the ultimate reason for everything that exists is to glorify God. It is the glory of God that we must pursue. The physical universe will not fail to give glory to God. Day after day pours forth speech and night after night knowledge. The animal world will not fail to do so. The only question that remains this morning, question for you and for me, is do we live to the praise of his glory? Do we get up in the morning thinking the praise of his glory, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever? Do we incessantly declare the glory of God as the physical creation does? More than a decade ago, there was a Nissan commercial that went this way. Life is a journey. Enjoy the ride. Life is a journey. Enjoy the ride. And as I heard that from time to time, I thought about the fact that as a believer, that is really, really true. The spiritual life of a believer is a wonderful journey. Romans chapter 8, verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? How can we not enjoy the ride? But the practical question remains, if I as a Christian am to glorify God and enjoy him forever, how am I going to make that happen? How am I going to achieve that? How am I going to make that a reality in my life? If that is the main thing, how am I going to keep it that way? To keep the main thing the main thing. This morning, I would like to suggest four foundation stones on which to build that kind of a life as a believer. A life that seeks to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Without these four foundation stones, these four truths, you and I will be forced to sputter along in the slow lane of our walk with the Lord. These principles are essential to glorifying God and enjoying him forever. And I suggest to you this morning, they are found with the psalmist in Psalm 139. Psalm 139. If you've not opened your Bible to that, please do so. Psalm 139 opens very easily to us. There are four stanzas of six verses each. Four stanzas of six verses each. The first four verses of each stanza are descriptive. Descriptive. This last two are reflective. The first four tell us the greatness of God, his attributes, who he is. The last two verses of each stanza reflect upon that, focusing on worship in light of God's attributes. David, you see, is enthralled with the worship of God, and the attributes help him in that regard. In the last two verses of each stanza... He gives us applied theology, if you will, taking the theology of the first four verses and applying it to daily life. And in doing so, he invites us to join with him in doing that. 
And before we dig into the text, one more thing. This is a very personal, personal psalm. First person pronouns, I and me and my, are used 48 times in this chapter. In reference to God, when referring to God, he uses the word you. You and me, not he and me, but you and me. There is a closeness, a nearness, an intimacy between the psalmist and the Lord. Four foundation stones on which to glorify God, to build a life that glorifies God and enjoys him forever. Let's look at the text. The first six verses give us the first principle. Recognize God's preeminent knowledge about you. Recognize God's preeminent knowledge about you. Verses 1 through 6. Look with me at verse 1. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. Think about it for a moment. He knows everything about you. Everything about you, he knows. He has full and complete knowledge of you and me. Like a master detective, he's aware of every detail of my existence. You have searched me. The word searcher means to dig. You've gone digging as for precious metals. Full investigation, no stone left unturned, perfect scrutiny, x-ray vision, no chance for a wrong diagnosis. All the way to the other end of our Bibles, Hebrews chapter 4 verse 13 reiterates this. There the writer of the Hebrews says, and there is no creature, that's you and me, there is no creature from hidden from his sight. But all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. All things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. What is the object of this search? You are the object. I am the object. The next three verses tell us all about that. Look with me at verse 2. First half of the verse 2, you know when I sit down and when I rise up. He knows our actions. He begins emphatically. It's unfortunate the English texts do not translate the, the Hebrew here. You, you alone, you, you alone know our actions, our rest, our motion, every condition of life he knows. Do you remember every time you sat down and stood up yesterday? Of course not. I don't. You don't. God knew it and God saw it. He knows our actions. The second half of the verse advances on. He knows our thoughts. You understand my thought from afar. His searching intensifies. If walls could talk, if thoughts could talk. God can read your mind, your intentions, your motives from afar, the text says, from afar. From time to time, I go on to my computer to look at Google Earth. Google Earth, I can see your neighborhood. I can see your street. I can zero in and see your home. This is like a divine Google Earth. He can see the neighborhood you live in, your street, your home. 
And what's more, something you can't do nor I, he can see inside your home. He can see inside of you. Jeremiah 23, verse 4, verse 24, excuse me. Can a man hide himself in hiding places so I do not see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill the heavens and the earth? Job 22 says, Is not God in the height of heaven? Look at the distant stars, how high they are. And you say, what does God know? He knows our actions. He knows our thoughts. Our thoughts. No wonder the Apostle Paul exhorts us to bring every thought, every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. You see, we think actions, we think words, but it is the thoughts that require obedience. Why is thought life so important? Because thought life generates itself usually in actions and words. There's a little poem that illustrates this so vividly. It is this. You've probably heard it. Your mind is a garden. Your thoughts are seeds. You can grow flowers or you can grow weeds. Thoughts. The thought life. Our actions. Our thoughts. Verse 3 continues the focus. He knows our path or our ways. Verse 3. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. You scrutinize my path. Now, the first thing when we read that, the first thing we think of God sitting in the heavens and he's got a pair of binoculars or telescope and he's looking down to earth and he's watching every move I make, lest I make a wrong move. That's not the point here at all. God, you see, scrutinizes our paths before we walk them. He scrutinizes our paths before we walk them. He's sifting them through the divine sieve, as it were. He wants to remove any obstacles or pitfalls before we travel it. Listen to what the scriptures tell us about what he does for us in that regard. Proverbs 16.9, you know it well. The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Psalm 23, 3. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. And the word for paths there is the word for tracks or ruts. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. God will not allow us to be tempted above what we are able, but will with the temptation make a way of escape that we are able, that we can be able to bear it. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. He scrutinizes our pathways. Verse 4, he knows our words. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. Even if you and I don't know what we are going to say, he does. And talk a lot, we do. The average person, scientists tell us, the average person spends one-fifth, one-fifth of his or her life Talking. If all of our words were put into a book, put into print, a single day's words, a single day's words would fill a 50-page book. 
In a year's time, the average person's words, words would fill 132 books of 200 pages each. My future thoughts, my future words, not just the past ones, my future thoughts, my future words are fully known. Your thoughts, my thoughts, our unformed thoughts and words are like seeds and their fruit is known in advance, in advance to the keeper of our heart. Verses 1 through 4, the doctrine of God, omniscience. He knows us. It's theology, the doctrine of God. Verses 5 and 6, now we get to the reflective part. The psalmist begins to reflect, reflecting on what he has seen in verses 1 through 4. Verse 5, you have enclosed me behind and before and laid your hand on me. Enclosed is the word for besieged or hemmed in. It's in a good sense. Look at verse 6, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's not bad. It's good. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. He goes before me. Psalm 23, verse 6, surely goodness and mercy will follow, or more technically, will pursue me all the days of my life. He leads us and he follows behind. It says, furthermore, there, And laid your hand on me. The word hand there is literally the word for palm. It's a gesture of blessing. Genesis chapter 48. Jacob has seen blessing his grandsons and he puts his palm on them. You see, as a believer, God's palm of blessing is upon you and me. He orchestrates his plan for his glory and for our good. Verse 6, all of this is too wonderful, too comforting to the psalmist. It is so incomprehensible. He can only marvel at it. I cannot attain it. It is too high. We cannot fully comprehend everything he knows about us, but we know it's true. His word declares that to be the case. It is this very knowledge that causes the Apostle Paul to exclaim in Romans chapter 11, Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. Life is a journey in which God has outlined the pathways of your life and of mine. Embrace his knowledge of you. Enjoy the ride that he is providing. Recognize his perfect knowledge about you. Acknowledge that to be true. He continues on in verses 7 through 12. Rejoice in his personal presence with you. Rejoice in his personal presence with you. Verses 7 through 12. One reason God knows everything about you and me is because he is always with you and me. We're tipped off to this back in verse 1. O Lord... You notice the word for Lord there is all capital letters. If it's all capital letters, that's a certain Hebrew word. It's Yahweh. And it means always is, always is there. Eternal existence, eternal presence. Oh, Lord, one who is eternally present is what he is saying. 
Always is, always is present. Oh, Lord. But then he elaborates here in verse 7. Where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? I don't think David is trying to get away from God's scrutiny. Quite the contrary. It's a rhetorical question that expects, expects a negative answer. David is glad there is no place he can go. He's comforted by the fact that his God is present with him continually. The rhetorical question is answered in verses 8 through 12. David here in verses 8 through 12 imagines three areas in which escape from God might be possible, at least from a human point of view. Verse 8, we have the escape up and down. If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed and shield, behold, you are there. Vertical extremities. Hypothetical question. He does not expect to be as Enoch or as Elijah where they did not die but were taken up into heaven. Quite the contrary. If I ascend to heaven, you are there. No surprise. He sits enthroned on the praises of his people. Psalm 2 verse 4. If I descend to Sheol or to hell, the place of the dead, God is there in the sense of judge. It's folly to think that people can escape from God's scrutiny. Amos chapter 9 verse 2. Though they dig into Sheol, from there my hand will take them. Though they ascend to heaven, from there I will bring them down. Vertical extremities. Verse 8. Horizontal, verses 9 and 10. If I take the wings of dawn and if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, there your hand will lead me and there your right hand will lay hold of me. From vertical extremities to horizontal extremities. To flash from east to the west, the dawn representing the east. Dwelling in the remotest part of the sea, the Mediterranean to the psalmist would have been west. Jonah tried to run from God, yet there God was laying hold of him. God was there to lay hold of him. Vertical extremities, there's no escape. Horizontal extremities, no escape. But he lays out one more in verses 11 and 12. Darkness. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me and the light around me will be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you and the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. If I say surely darkness will overwhelm me. If you have notes in your Bible, you might notice a marginal note there that is literally the word bruise. If I say surely darkness will bruise me. the same word used in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. He will bruise of you the head and you will bruise of him the heel. Speaking of our Savior and Satan. Darkness will not overwhelm. Danger will not come. It will not harm me. It will not bruise me. Psalm 23. Yea, though I walk through the valley of deep darkness, you are with me. You are with me. Even darkness cannot hide one from God. Even darkness is light to God. Daniel chapter 2. Daniel is called upon to know the dream of Nebuchadnezzar. 
And he says there, it is God who reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells in him. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. How is that to be done? In verses 1 through 6, the psalmist tells us that we must recognize his knowledge about us. In verses 7 to 12, he tells us that we should rejoice in his personal presence with us. He continues on in verses 13 to 18. He gives us a third truth with regard to this. He calls upon us to marvel at his powerful creation of you. Marvel at his powerful creation of you and me. No wonder God knows you and me. He's always with you. He made you. He created you. Look with me at verses 13 and following. For you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. The psalmist here is rehearsing it poetically almost. God's creation of him. Man's body is the most complex and intricately designed system in the universe. Some amazing statistics about our bodies. Scientists tell us that we each have 200 billion, 200 billion brain cells. That is the electronic equivalent of every radio and TV station in the world. Of our five senses, we have some astonishing capabilities. Our nose can smell 50,000 different scents. Our taste buds can taste an ounce of salt in 100 gallons of water. Sense of touch can detect a pressure that depresses the skin one one-thousandth of an inch on the face or the fingertips. Our ears can tell where a sound is coming from even when it arrives at one ear just three one-thousandth of a second before it reaches the other ear. Our five senses, our organs are equally astonishing. The heart beats 100,000 times a day. It pumps 48 million gallons of blood in a lifetime, pumping that blood through 60,000 miles of blood vessels in our bodies traveling 168 million miles every day. Our lungs breathe 23,000 times a day, inhaling 2,000 gallons of air every day. Our kidneys process over 400 gallons of blood every day. Amazingly made, intricately made, astonishingly made. I don't think David is writing here about abortion. I think it's far from his mind as he pens this psalm. But we cannot help but think of it, think of the impact of these words on that topic. Verse 14, I will give thanks to you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. The word wonderfully there in the Hebrew is to be different or distinct. You see, each of us has been created uniquely. Our DNA, no two... Humans are alike. 
the adult body has approximately 75 trillion cells. The adult body has approximately 75 trillion cells. Yet you and I began with only two microscopic cells coming together. Amazing. Verse 15, we've been skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Skillfully wrought, it's a word used elsewhere for embroidery or weaving, tapestry. You see, the pattern of your DNA is an intricate structure. It serves as the template for the building of you, for the building of me. And the divine weaver is secretly weaving an intricate, beautiful design in your life and in mine. This is not merely creative power where he uses a cookie cutter for you and me. It's a power that shaped you uniquely. He didn't just create you. He fashioned you individually to make you you. He made you in the most perfect way so you could best glorify him, so you could truly enjoy him. That leads us to verse 16. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. He knows our thoughts from afar, verse 2. He knows our words before we say them, verse 4. He knows us, verse 16, before we were born. Before David was born, God had marvelously planned out his life. My unformed substance. Literally in the Hebrew, it's not unfolded. Not unfolded. Probably still rolled up. Speaking of life in the womb. The days that were ordained for me. You can't add to them. Subtract them according to God's perfect plan. And interesting, not given here, but elsewhere. It's not only the length of days, but the events of life as well. The events of David's life. Listen to what David says elsewhere about the events of life. Psalm 56, verse 8. You have taken account of my wanderings. You've put my tears in a bottle. Are they not in your book? Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. That well-known verse. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he has before ordained that we should walk in them. I don't know about for you, but for me, nothing provides more confidence and encouragement than this, and it should for all of us. Knowing that he has your days numbered from eternity past, You and I are not leaving this world a day early or a day late. Job comments about that. Man's days are determined. The number of his months is with you and his limits you have set so he cannot pass. God is a God of details. Matthew chapter 10 verses 29 to 30 talk about having the hairs of your head numbered, and seeing the sparrow fall. God is a God of details. 
He has your days numbered from eternity past. He knows the events, the good works that he has ordained for you. No wonder the psalmist expresses and exclaims in verses 17 to 18, reflecting again, How precious are your thoughts to me, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Knowing God, knowing that God knows everything, that he is always present, that he is all-powerful, none of that is a hardship for us, is it? It's the most valuable asset. It alleviates all the worry and concern. You see, he made you exactly the way he wished. He put you into this world, into the family that he wished. He put you into the world in this time of life for his good, for his glory, and for our good. It says here, furthermore, at the end of verse 18, When I awake, I am still with you. This is possibly a reference to David's recitation of these very thoughts as he got up in the morning. Or it's possibly a reference to when he awakes in God's presence at death. From birth to death, awaking in his presence. Nothing will separate me from the love of God. To glorify God and enjoy him forever. We must recognize his knowledge about us. Rejoice in his presence with us. And marvel at his powerful creation of us. Uniquely so. But there is one more stanza. There's more to this incredible journey, and it requires a response on your part and on mine. It is given in verses 19 through verse 24. Pursue God's holiness in you. Pursue God's holiness in you. Look with me at verse 19. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, men of bloodshed, for they speak against you wickedly, and your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. To glorify God and to enjoy him forever, we must pursue his holiness. You see, David here takes this psalm to a whole new level. God's perfect knowledge, his presence with us, his power, are complemented by his holiness. God cannot condone sin. These men are enemies of God, and thus they are enemies of David as well. There's no neutrality. No moral neutrality is permitted. David becomes so taken with God's sovereignty, God's holiness, that he wants nothing to do with such evil men. He knows that bad company always corrupts good morals. He loathes them, it says. Loathes them. To be sickened by them. To be disgusted. To be grieved. To loathe. Psalm 119, verse 158. I behold the treacherous and loathe them because they do not keep your word. 
Psalm 69, verse 9, a verse that Jesus quotes, Zeal for your house has consumed me. The reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. I hate them with the utmost hatred, verse 22. Perfect, complete, full hatred. They have become my enemies. Let's bring this a little closer to home as we end this psalm. When David saw the Lord, Job, excuse me, when Job saw the Lord, he cried out in Psalm 42, I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you, therefore I repent in dust and ashes. The psalmist has been reviewing the doctrine of God, who God is, and as he comes closer and closer to seeing who God is, he sees the evil one. And he sees his own life in comparison. Isaiah chapter 6 verse 5, Isaiah says, Woe is me when he saw the Lord. Woe is me for I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips. David's reaction here is similar. These verses are David's response to seeing God's holiness, his attributes. He hates the evildoers. He recounts their deeds. But he realizes that he is not without sin either. That God will overlook no thought or action either of the wicked or of the psalmist himself. After rehearsing the sins of others, he realizes that he is sinful as well. And so he cries out in verses 23 and 24, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. The question that we come as we come to those last two verses is, didn't God already do that in verse 1? You've searched me and you have known me. Why is the psalmist repeating himself? He's saying, God, you've already searched me. But now he's saying, please show me what your searching has found. Show me what you see. I want to know what you know. He wants to know his own heart as God knows it. He wants to know what God knows. Ancient Egyptians thought that God weighed the heart after death. But not so with the true God. The psalmist wants God to weigh his heart during his life. Job 23 verse 10. But he knows the way that I take. And when he has tested or tried, it's the same word. When he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. Search me, try me. And see if there be any hurtful way in me, anything that might lead to pain or hurt later either to God or to the psalmist. Purge me of anything that might be offensive to you. Can you pray verses 23 and 24? It's a brave prayer. But it is one that you and I must pray as well because, you see, we are too blind, too spiritually deceived to truly know our own heart. And thus we must ask him to search our hearts, to reveal to us what he sees. 
And notice the word order here. The word order is very important. Search me. Try me. And lead me. After the searching comes the testing. The dross has to be burned off. Those anxious thoughts that make me vulnerable to my sin. And after the testing comes the leading. You see, if you're like me, we plead for leading. We go to God in prayer and we ask him to lead us. But do we ask him to search us first? To try us or test us? We plead for leading, but not for the searching and testing. The order is important. Leading follows a heart that is open to God's searching and testing. You see in verses 1 through 22, those verses often represent us as believers. We know the theology that God is omniscient, all-powerful, that he created us, that he knows all. We hate those who hate God. We know it all on paper. We embrace it in theory, but do we welcome his knowledge of us? Do we invite his findings? Verse 23 and 24 is a prayer that calls each of us to account this morning. You see, you and I still need to be searched and tried, scrutinized, examined, tested. We need to see ourselves in the searching headlights of God's omniscience. He knows more about you and me than we know about ourselves. The question this morning is, are we really willing to pray that prayer? Ultimately, it's not enough to recognize his knowledge of us, his presence with us, or his creation of us. You see, the door that opens to glorifying God and enjoying him forever in your life and mine comes through this prayer. The door to glorifying God and enjoying forever comes through praying this prayer. It may invite some pain. It may invite some surgery. But there is nothing to be afraid of because as his child, he loves you eternally. He knows what we need and he wants to help us. One author puts it up, puts it this way, sums it up well. He says this, I am graven on the palms of his hands. I am never out of his mind. I know him because he first knew me and continues to know me. He knows me as a friend, one who loves me. And there is no moment when his eye is off me or his attention distracted from me. And no moment, therefore, when his care falters. This is momentous knowledge. There is unspeakable comfort in knowing that God is constantly taking knowledge of me in love and watching over me for my good. Praying the prayer, pursuing the ultimate goal. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Bask in the glow of Psalm 139 and let the psalmist feed your soul as you seek to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Let's pray.
Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for your omniscience, your omnipotence, your omnipresence, that you are with us, you know all. There's nothing to hide because you already know it. We confess that we do not always declare your glory. Physical creation does, but we fall short. May we be folks, people who pray the prayer at the end to search us and know us, to try us, to test us, to see if there be any wicked way in us, and then to lead us in the way everlasting. We call upon you to work in our hearts and our lives that we might truly know what you find there and be able to glorify you and enjoy you fully and completely. In Jesus' name, amen.